0: Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. Follow along as I read. Again, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbaths to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they how to destroy him. Let's pray. God, our Father, we can right now know that you are our Father all because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life And who died the death we deserved on our behalf. But death couldn't hold him down. And he rose again on the third day. It's because of Jesus that we are here. It's because of Jesus that we've all gathered here. And it's amazing to witness the reality of your power and your grace at work in and through our lives. And so as we study... The life of Jesus, Father. May we be inspired to grow in our love for him. May we be inspired to seek that many people that you've placed in our life will know him as well. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we sung a song, I think it was the last song we sung, and it was Jesus Paid It All. Um, that song has to be one of my favorite songs. I As I was singing, I was taken back to a cold, wintry evening in London. I had finished work, and I was on my way home. And at that time, I was living with my grandma. And I was on my way home. I had my headphones on. I think at the time, it was MP3s. We didn't have phones, you know, 35 now. But we didn't have phones or anything. It was like this MP3 player. And I remember hearing this song. Um, at the Passion Conference and really just loving it and playing it throughout the day. And I'm on my way to my grandma's and I'm playing it and I'm just worshipping. You can imagine it's dark and cold and wet in the streets of London. My grandma lived in West London um, and I go to her house. And at that time, my grandma was kind of in her 70s um, and she was a vegan (laughs) and she loved Anything that was plant-based. And so I looked forward to going home to keep warm, but I really never looked forward to going to her home because I would have to eat lots of vegetables and plant-based food. Absolutely loved my grandma. She was an avid Seventh-day Adventist. And I grew up with my grandma. And growing up with my grandma meant um, practicing her faith. Um, and one of the key kind of elements of the Seventh day Adventist church is their Sabbath. Um, They celebrate the Sabbath, and for them, I mean, as long as my grand, she passed away in 2015, and until then, she was an avid follower of the Seventh-day Adventist faith. She never missed the Sabbath, Um, and when I was growing up with her, I would have to follow in her footsteps, and I dreaded the Sabbath. It was a Saturday, of course, and I dreaded it, honestly, because I couldn't watch cartoons on Saturday, Um, and I couldn't watch... Wrestling. I used to love wrestling. It used to be called WWF back then, but now it's WWE. But I couldn't watch wrestling. It just felt like that day, instead of it being a delight and a restful time, it was just cold and kind of grayscale and just really made me miserable that the Saturday was coming up. In growing up and in understanding the Sabbath a little bit more, I have come to realize that that wasn't um, how I was meant to feel about the Sabbath. It wasn't at all. In ancient Israel, the Sabbath was an important day of the week. Okay, It was the only day with a name. All the rest were just known by a number. The Sabbath was a gift and a commandment. It was a commandment that one out of seven days, God's people should do no work but to relax and reflect and rest in the goodness of God. Um, you guys possibly know there's many Jews now still celebrate the Sabbath. In fact, on Friday I was studying at my new kind of office that I study at. It's called Charlie's Best Bread, and it's not too far from here. Um, and I say it's new, and I love it because I've been a brick and bell advocate for a long time. For those who know, no, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but I was studying, and I met a friend of mine. His name's Ben, and he was there picking up some bread for the sabbath he's a jew and him and his family um, he's kind of in his 30s and him and his family still celebrate the sabbath They don't do any work, of course. They don't drive. They don't cook anything. And so he was there picking up bread. And so I was studying this passage, and I kind of got to have a good conversation with him about the Sabbath and what it looks like and what he told me about. It was awesome. He was like, my family and I look forward to the Sabbath each and every week. And that was what the Sabbath was meant to be. For Jewish people, the Sabbath day was a great, great law given for their enjoyment. And now the question was, what does it mean to do no work on the Sabbath? Okay, that was the question they wrestled with in Jesus' they wrestled within Jesus's day. The Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day were so worried about breaking this commandment they decided to come up with a list of what you could do and could not do on the Sabbath. So they defined 39 classes of work that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Some of them were obvious back then, like hunting, you weren't allowed to hunt or you weren't allowed to plow your field, you weren't allowed to bake or cook anything or even make fire back then. But some (laughs) of the others were weird and odd, okay? For them, for some of them, they went as far as to say that during the Sabbath, you weren't even allowed to tie or untie a knot. Or on the Sabbath, you couldn't sew more than one stitch. Also, weirdly enough, on the Sabbath, uh, if your house caught on fire, you couldn't go into your house and retrieve some of your valuables. The only thing you could go back to retrieve if there was a fire in your house was um, your Old Testament Bible, okay? Anything else, you weren't allowed to go back for it on the Sabbath. It would be classed as work. And these are the laws the Pharisees at that time were judging Jesus by. The Sabbath was supposed to be a time of rest, a time to enjoy the goodness of God, but the Pharisees, with all their rules, had made it into a restless and anxious day. So far, we've been studying Mark for a few weeks now. Jesus has kind of developed a bad reputation among the Pharisees. In their opinion, Jesus is like this fake Guy, he's not the prophet or rabbi he's claiming to be. They view him as a notorious kind of cult leader and rebel because what he keeps doing is kind of doing and saying things that go against everything they believe. So they've been hell-bent on exposing Jesus. And this incident in the synagogue is a setup. It's kind of the climax of, uh, climax of their attempt to catch Jesus in some overt crime. So they've orchestrated th- this incident so that Jesus can bite the bait and be caught and characterized as an outright criminal, a violator of the law, of the Sabbath law. And so the Pharisees have staged this incident And this for this very purpose and it takes place on the Sabbath day. Look at verse one with me. It says again he that is Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a a withered hand. Like most Jews, every Sabbath, Jesus would attend a service um, held at the local synagogue. At this moment of his life, Jesus is kind of a celebrity. Everywhere he went, crowds would follow him to hear him teach and perform miracles, all right? We're not told what Jesus did when he entered the synagogue, but it's safe to say because of his growing popularity, they probably asked him to come and teach and share a message or something, okay? But out of all the people that attended the service at the synagogue on that Sabbath day, an individual described as a man with a withered hand becomes the center of attention. Suddenly, the focus is on this man. Who was he? We don't know who he was, All we know is that he was a man with a withered hand, okay? And it's interesting that here he's referred to not by his name or his occupation or his ethnicity, but by his disability, by his flaw. He's the man known to have a withered hand, That's what he's been identified as. Later, of course, we're going to see that Jesus heals this man and restores his hand back to health. But for most of us, and this is interesting, before we encountered Jesus, our identity was wrapped up in our flaws and weaknesses, In my early years, okay, believe it or not, in my early years, I was super shy, okay? I was a shy kid growing up. Hard to believe, but I was, okay? And because of that, I kind of was labeled as Timid, okay? Everyone would call me timid. My stepdad would call me timid. That became my identity. I don't know how I kind of escaped from it, right? But something happened along the way and now I'm not as shy anymore. But that was kind of what I was known as. And so my question to you is, right, I wonder what your identity was before Jesus radically saved you. I wonder what your identity was. I wonder what you was labeled as before Jesus changed your life. It's amazing for us to realize the reality of who we are in Christ now. Because we're in Christ, our truest identity is not who we were before Christ. Our truest identity is who we've become. In Christ. In Christ, right? You are a child of God. Okay? In Christ, you are his son or you are his daughter. Now, the word withered here can also be translated dried up or shriveled. Okay? The use and design of the word suggests that this man wasn't born with a deformed hand. It was possibly caused by an injury or a disease or an infection. So this is a man who is handicapped, Okay, who has a physical abnormality that has not only brought about much grief and pain and embarrassment, but also many restrictions, okay? Back in the first century, most of the work that needed to be done was physical labor, okay? Most of the work, you needed hands to do it. And so for this man to have a withered hand meant that for most of the jobs available back then, he was disqualified for. And so He would apply for a job, and as soon as they would notice and see that he had a withered hand, he would be disqualified. And out of all the people in the synagogue, this is the person Mark, who is the author of this biography of Jesus, chooses to focus on. Why does he focus on this man? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 2. It says, And they, that is the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Right? The Greek word used for watched here means to examine with a critical eye. It's the kind of watching done with arms crossed, screwed face, and driven by a desire to find something that can be used to condemn a person. Okay, it's like a prosecutor in a trial, okay? Their goal and purpose is to find as much evidence as possible, okay, to accuse, okay, or to come against the defendant. That's the goal and intent of the Pharisees here. They're on the lookout. They are watching for Jesus to slip up to do something that they can use against him. And what they're closely watching and waiting for Jesus to do That they can use to accuse him is to heal the man. If Jesus heals this man with the withered hand, they've got enough evidence to use against him. And this doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't, okay? Because I'm sure you guys are thinking hey, like, what is wrong with someone, what is wrong with helping someone who is in need? doesn't make sense to us, but for the Pharisees, it made total sense. And that is because, according to the laws the Pharisees lived by, only life-threatening conditions could be healed on the Sabbath, okay? Any illness or sickness or physical condition that wasn't life-threatening had to wait until the Sabbath was over, okay, for it to be treated, And so, according to them, this man with the shriveled hand, he's not dying. He hasn't got a life-threatening thing going on, and so he can wait. And so, according to your law, if Jesus heals this man, he is directly violating the Sabbath. So, they wait, hoping Jesus will bite the bait, and the whole scene has this feel of a setup it just feels like they kind of got this guy and dragged him into the synagogue and brought him before Jesus and just waited for Jesus to bite the bait and just waited for Jesus to heal him so they could find something to use against Jesus will Jesus fall into the trap is he going to heal on the sabbath and be guilty of violating the law, look at verse 3. It says that Jesus looks at the man with the withered hand and says to him, what? Well, come here. I like the way the NIV translation of the Bible puts this. It says, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stan, stand up in front of everyone. That's what's happening here. And in doing this, Jesus wants to communicate to everyone that He wasn't going to just heal this man, but most importantly, he wanted to expose what was going on in the minds of the Pharisees and the state of their heart. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. And so, while the man remains standing, verse 4 lets us know that Jesus then looks at the Pharisees and then asks them the following question. Look at verse 4. It says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? At first glance, this question is sounds odd, okay? And the reason it sounds odd is because it has an obvious answer. Of course, it's right to do good and save a life on the Sabbath. Of course, it's definitely wrong to harm or kill on the Sabbath. You don't need to think about this question to know the answer, It's not difficult. The Sabbath day was all about giving life and being restored. And what better picture to show the intention of the Sabbath than to bring healing to a troubled human being? It's an easy question with an obvious answer. So how did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' question? End of verse 4 tells us that they were silent. Didn't say a word. I had this experience this week. And so my wife and I are driving, forget where we were going, and we kind of were talking about fitness and how she's doing a killer job, really, you know, doing a good job, getting fit. Some of you have seen her Instagram stories where she's killing it and doing a good job. And I'm saying, you're just doing a good job, you're killing it. And I sort of suggested to her that she should one day run a marathon, And I thought she would respond with, yeah, I'm up for it. Yes, I can. She was just like, no. And I was like, why? (laughs) I said, why? You run a marathon. You do a great job. It would be an amazing achievement. You've got to do it. And she was like, no, I don't like running. When I run, I kind of get a stitch. And I'm like, you can do it. Yes, you can. Ah," All of that. And so she turns around and says, I will only run a marathon if you learn how to swim. Let's do it. Silence. They didn't say a word. <laughs> and so this is what this was kind of like. Um, they remained silent because Jesus had just proved to them how unloving and pointless their beliefs about the Sabbath were. They taught that only if the man's life was in danger was healing allowed on the Sabbath. But Jesus confronts and dismantles this belief by making the point that the Sabbath of all days, okay, the Sabbath of all days should be the one day people respond to opportunities to bless others. The answer was obvious to everyone sitting there, and there was no way they could respond without repentance. And they were not prepared to do that. So they kept silent. Look at verse 5. It says, And he, that is Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So these Pharisees, okay, have been watching Jesus with a critical eye. What's interesting is that right about now, even more striking, Jesus is now looking at them with anger. So, why is Jesus? Angry. Verse 5 tells us that it was because of their hardness of heart. Jesus was angry and grieved over the fact that their hearts were hard. Most of the time, when we get angry, it's because we don't get what we want or get our way. Again, I experienced this this week. Um, On Friday, I was out studying and... Um, before I left in the morning, I had a bowl of cereal, and I studied at my new favorite place, which is Charlie's Best Bread, Um, and I love studying there, because they give you free bread samples all the time, yeah, you guys are going to check it out after service, I know you are, I'm making you hungry, and I'm there, and I'm sampling all this bread, and you know, after I was done with my studying at around three o'clock, I went to the gym, and just worked out, and so my goal after, on my way home after the gym was like just I was hungry just really hungry and I just expected to walk home and smell and and the aroma of dinner and a nice meal (laughs) I get home and Eleanor's not done with dinner yet she's kind of chopping the onions and everything and I'm like wow like Gosh man! I was expecting dinner to be ready, and I'm rationalizing my how come she hasn't got dinner ready, and everything like that, and then she's just getting dinner ready, and I was supposed to help her. I should have helped her, but because I was just beginning to get really like, oh, you know, I was like she can do it herself, all of that, and so just I'm just beginning to like just boil boil with anger, and then you know dinner's done, and it's ready, and um. It just wasn't done enough. So I, no, I, before that, I asked her, I was like, how long has dinner gone?" And she was like, 20 minutes. I'm like, 20 minutes. Ah! And so I go in the kitchen, and to prove um, my kind of disappointment with Eleanor not having dinner ready, I go and get two pieces of bread, and I put it in the toast, and I'm just eating it in front of her. And I get yogurt, and I'm just like just boiling, getting angry, and so dinner's ready. And hey, dinner's ready, and she cooked this palafi um, um, dish, it's Greek, and it's rice, and it's tomatoes, and chicken, and she cooks it, and it's ready, and I sit, and I'm just ready to, and I'm like, "Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm ready to eat, I take a bite, and I'm like, wow, this is like, not cooked properly what's going on? And so, you know, I'm just kind of feeling like really angry and really upset and everything. And I'm not proud of this, by the way. It was horrible. (laughs) It was horrible. And I'm just like, I can't eat this. And she's trying to, and she's, you know, Eleanor, she's just awesome. She's like, I, you know, she's one of those ladies that just doesn't care (laughs) how I respond to her meal. She wasn't like hurt or anything. But later on, um, after everything, I had a shower and everything, I went up to her, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I was horrible. Um, how I responded to everything was horrible. Would you forgive me? And she just laughed at me and said, hey, like... It's easy to upset you. What upsets you most is if there is no rice, okay? Because I love rice. (laughs) And, like, you're hungry. You just get, and Jesus, like, I forgive you and everything. But that was just an example of how we all, most of the time, like, are easily angered. When we don't get what we want, when our expectations are not met, we can easily get angry. For Jesus, he was angry because of their hardness of heart. He was never angry at the sinners, but he did express anger toward the self-righteous Pharisees. Jesus his anger was always righteous. His anger was always leveled at the injustice, okay? or the hardness of heart of people, when people were not responsive to who he was and what he was about, Jesus was rightly angry. The Pharisees had such an unhealthy view of the Sabbath, it had caused their hearts to be stubborn and unresponsive to Jesus. Jesus then commands the man to stretch out his hand, his deformed hand, and he does so, and we know the story, he is healed. And just to point out that it was a big deal for the man to kind of sh- like stand in front of everyone and stretch out his hand. It wasn't an easy thing to do. Just imagine something you've been embarrassed about all of your life, something that has brought you pain and distress, okay, and disqualified you. It, you, you know, someone's asking you to reveal it and expose it so that everyone can see. But it's amazing to witness that as he's stretching out his hand, as he's being obedient to what Jesus told him to do, in the midst of it, he receives healing. Now, Mark here doesn't tell us how the man responds. But I'm sure... As soon as he sees that his hand is healed, okay, he's possibly he was possibly filled with uncontrollable joy. Okay. The audience must have been like, whoa, ooh, wow, wow, this is amazing. Oh my gosh, this man like sheer joy, sheer delight, sheer wonder, sheer awe. But surprisingly. Not everyone in the synagogue expressed emotions of gratitude and awe. The Pharisees witnessed this miracle of healing and they are livid. They are furious. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out immediately. And what did they do? They held counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians were enemies. The Pharisees just hated and disliked the Herodians. But yet, because of their hatred towards Jesus, they partnered with their enemies in order to destroy Jesus. To them, Jesus had just violated the law by healing someone on the Sabbath. They now had enough evidence against him to seek his arrest and death. So... This is a story about the Sabbath, but it's a story about so much more, all right? It's a story about Jesus' way of relating to God over and against the religious way of relating to to God. It's about two ways of relating to God through relationship or rules. To the Pharisees, the Sabbath was a rule and a burden when it should have been a day of rest and freedom in God. And so we can sit here, okay, and just be like, oh, the Pharisees, think about it. Most of us who have grown up in the church, the Pharisee kind of character is kind of like the bad guy and the evil person, right? That is how we feel. And it's easy to point a finger at them. But if we're honest with ourselves, the spirit and the mindset of the Pharisees exists in all of us. And this is how it can play out if we prioritize religious activities over and above a relationship with god we are acting just like the pharisees so if we value ministry over and over and above intimacy with god we are having or or having the same mindset if we love to serve at the church if we love to roll up our sleeves and you know help set up chairs and do all of these amazing and get involved in serving the church this is amazing but for most of us if we're honest with ourselves we value ministry more than intimacy it's easier and it's more enjoyable for us to work for God rather than rest and dwell in the, re- in the work he's done for us on the cross. The mindset of the Pharisees exists in all of us If we're more concerned about what we can get from church rather than what we can give to the church, the man with the withered hand humbly responded to Jesus' call. Okay? He humbly exposed his flaw and obeyed Jesus' call to himself. And so for some of us, we have flaws and weaknesses and Jesus is continually calling us calling us to come to him with those flaws and weaknesses and so like me like all of you we we have we have brokenness in our life flaws in our all of that and it's amazing the obedience of this man in exposing his withered hand to Jesus and obeying Jesus. And it's interesting that he did it before an audience. And I'm not saying, right, what I'm not saying is that, hey, like, come and share all of your know, But there are times when we need community. We need to confess to community and people that God has placed in our lives some of the flaws and weaknesses we have so that they can walk with us for the purpose of restoration. We also have the mindset of Pharisees when our preferences become more important than God's purposes, okay? We all have preferences. We all have things that we love and want to see, especially in the life of a new church plant, okay? We all have great things that we want to see, but if our preferences, okay, become more important than God's purposes, what will end up happening is that we will end up becoming hard hearted to the work God is doing. If it's not happening the way we want it to happen or expect it to happen, oftentimes we can begin to question whether God is at work or not. We've just got to be careful of that. The Pharisees were self-righteous. They believed that they can make themselves right before God by being good. By obeying strict laws. They don't believe they needed someone to intervene. And so they they wanted to kind of do it themselves. And they felt that they could do it themselves. Absolutely that. We know that for sure. As we learn about the Pharisees, Jesus was angered and grieved at their hardness of heart. Because their hearts are hard to Jesus, their hearts are hard to fellow humans. And so as we reflect on this story, the question we should be asking is, are our hearts the same? Do we have hearts that are unresponsive to the things of God? Maybe you're here, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You've already made your mind up about Jesus. Jesus. Okay? Already made your mind up about Jesus. You're already not interested in Jesus. Your heart has already rejected Jesus. If that is you today, this is my encouragement to you. Don't let it remain this way. If you've come this morning with your mind made up about Jesus, look again at Jesus. Jesus. Look again at Jesus. If you've come with your heart resistant to Jesus, be open to Jesus and what he has to offer. Realize that this same Jesus who looks around in anger is the same Jesus who invites you to stretch out your hand and find restoration. If you decide to stop living for yourself and start living for Jesus, he promises to give you a new heart to take away your heart of stone and replace it with a responsive heart to him. Don't let your hard heart have the last word. Don't let offense hold you back from coming to Jesus who gives life and enjoyment and takes away the burden of rules and regulations and says, come to me and know the enjoyment of knowing a God who made you, a God who invites you to rest. And so, if you're not a believer, I would say to you this morning, this, this Jesus is your only hope. He absolutely is your only hope. He's your, um, the, the one who can give you life And he's the one who can forgive all of your sins. The renowned British minister, Dick Lucas, once preached a sermon in which he um, talked about um, an imaginary conversation between an early Christian okay, and um, a neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests, but where do you offer your sacrifices to require the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, says the neighbor. And the answer is, is no kind of religion at all. It's a real and lasting relationship with God, the Creator. And so, as a believer, may you enjoy the rest you have in Jesus. May you never forget that in Christ you have forgiveness of sins. And your life is secure and grounded in all that Jesus has done. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for reminding us of these truths of our tendency um, to value. Um, traditions and religious activity above and over um, a relationship with you God you are at work you really are at work and so remove some of the blindness we have Father to not only witness you at work but to understand that There are times when you do amazing things. And may we see it, and may we experience it, and may we give you all the glory for what you do. Thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to remember the many things Jesus has done on our behalf. Jesus, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen every Sunday um, we remember Christ um, through our spiritual practices like singing and like you just heard the um, reading and the preaching of the word. But today and once a month we remember Christ in a unique way. We celebrate his life, we proclaim his death, we rejoice in his resurrection through communion. Today We look deep within ourselves. And the reason we do that is we want to examine our attitudes and intentions. And although our attitudes and intentions are flawed, as we celebrate Jesus' life and proclaim his death and rejoice in his resurrection, we are reminded that as we commune with Christ in community, okay, as we um, eat, This bread that we have over there, which is the body of Christ broken for us, and we drink of this cup, right? Um, That is the blood of Jesus poured out for our forgiveness. We are reminded that our sins are forgiven, and we have been made alive together with Christ. And so, as a church, we are going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us through communion. And so how we do it is that we have um, some um, wafers and some juice over there. And how we practice this is when when, when Dan and the team start to play, um, you can take time, you can pray. And um, at the time that is appropriate for you, you can stand and you can go and you can grab a piece of the wafer, wafer dip it in the uh, um, and the juice, and then come back to your seat. And I would recommend that you pray, and that you would recommend I would recommend that you pray and you ask God to to give you a heart and a mind of understanding to understand what He's done for you. And as that happens, He will remind you of what He's done, and He will cause you to celebrate and rejoice, and then partake in communion.